Hi, everybody. This is your host, Brian, for the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we meet innovative and inspiring facilities leaders from across the country. In this episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. C.J. Huff, the former superintendent of Joplin Schools. Dr. Huff is an amazing leader. He started off as a farmer in Southeast Kansas and navigated his way to eventually become the superintendent of Joplin Schools. In this episode, he shares insight on the significance of resilience and the impact of community engagement. Dr. Huff also delves into the challenges he faced, including leading during the tragedy of the Joplin tornado. He sheds light on the importance of understanding the needs of both students and staff and the crucial role that the facilities team played during that process. These days, Dr. Huff is traveling the world and helping organizations with disaster recovery and strategic planning. Believe me, you don't want to miss this one. Let's dive in. Dr. C.J. Huff, thank you so much for joining me this morning, and I can't wait to hear a little bit more about your background and story. Just for our audience, before we get started here, tell us a little bit about what you have done in the past and what you're doing now. Okay, so I uh, grew up in Southeast Kansas and uh, was uh, actually kind of late bloomer into education. I was a farmer first. I farmed for about uh, six, seven years right out of high school and continued working on, you know, going to college and finally uh, kind of fell in love with my education major, uh, graduated teaching degree in elementary education, uh, started teaching third grade in Pleasanton, Kansas, and then got married and moved to Springfield, Missouri, actually kind of come full circle because that's where I live now. And uh, we got married, moved to Springfield, Missouri, got a teaching job up in Bolivar, Missouri. So then I spent the rest of my career in Missouri, kind of bouncing around, you know, as a classroom teacher initially, and then uh, moved up into a, a principalship in a couple different districts and then got my doctorate degree at the University of Arkansas and um, got my first superintendency in Eldon, Missouri, and then had the opportunity in uh, 2008 to uh, get a little closer to home and to a larger district that met my career goals and uh, landed in Joplin, Missouri in 2008 and um, was superintendent in, in Joplin from 2008 to 2015. So um, that was uh, kind of uh, my education background anyway. A lot of things have happened since then, but certainly uh, that was kind of my career path. That's great. Yeah, my wife is actually a FFA advisor for five years. Uh, I was an ag too. I got the state farmer award. That was the pinnacle of my uh, high school career. Yeah. Yeah. We just bought a small amount of land and I got a tractor. So that's kind of my happy. Oh, good for you. My good happy place you. now. You're, you're ahead of me right now at this point. I've just got a you know half acre backyard with a lot of walnuts have to be picked up this time of year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, so you started off farming and kind of worked your way up the education side, you know, the K-12 industry. When you look back at that part of your career, what were some of the, I guess, most challenging times or maybe also most rewarding times? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that there was ever a day in my entire education career, even on my darkest days, which we'll even we'll talk a little bit about that later, I'm sure. But some of the most challenging uh, days of my career that I wasn't excited to get up and go to work. I mean, I was, you know, I love kids, I love working with adults and just being around people. And I just loved the work, you know, things I saw, I think one of the things really shaped me as an educator was my time when I was a principal in Springfield, Missouri, uh, in the highest poverty school in the district, and uh, about a 94, 96% for reduced lunch rate in that particular school. And just seeing the challenges of kids that come from poverty, extreme poverty, as well as some of the adult situations and how those families function and try to just survive day to day. And then, you know, it really, from a leadership standpoint and from the standpoint of how to engage the community, one thing I'll say about that particular school is that that school community, as disadvantaged as those children were and as much as that school community struggled in that area because of the poverty and the crime and all those things that were, you know, kind of societal issues, just seeing how that community rallied to that school and how everybody came together and rallied around kids, around children and youth in that school was just amazing. I mean, there were some great things that were happening there. Our student achievement was pretty good. 
uh, in comparison to more affluent schools in the district. And our student attendance, actually, which is always a challenge in high poverty schools, was the highest in the district. We competed every month. We were looking at our numbers and we were right there every month with the uh, highest performing schools in the district. So you know, that was a really a great learning experience for me. The challenge, I didn't stay there very long, though. I was only there for two years. And part of that, which I wasn't a dad yet, I didn't have children of my own yet. So I was a dad to all these kids. And, you know, seeing how some of the most severe abuse and neglect situations I've ever encountered since, and that, you know, I had a lot of years after that working with kids and families where happened right there. And in that particular school. And so I was taking that baggage home with me every night. And, you know, I'm ashamed to say it, but I just couldn't hardly deal with it. You know, when I had the opportunity to move on and, and I wasn't really looking for a job, but one kind of came to me, I took advantage of that opportunity to go to a district that didn't have those kind of challenges. And we did a lot of a good instructional work. Most of my day was spent, you know, just making sure kids were in school, dealing with family services and things of that nature and, you know, abuse and neglect situations and things of that nature. And that wasn't that wasn't why I got into the business, but I'll tell you what, that experience probably did more to shape my career and my thinking. I could go back to that school today. I'd be a better principal, I think, and be able to stay there forever. But at the time, it was just a lot to take in as a new principal, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a formative time right yeah. in your career. Yeah, for how, sure. how old were you at that time, CJ? Oh, my gosh. You know, you're really making me stretch here. I think I was like 29 to 31, maybe. Yeah. And that range, pretty young so. to take on that that type of load. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think uh, my oldest daughter, who's uh, 23, she wasn't even born yet. I think when I left Weaver Elementary School, my wife might have been pregnant at that time. Yeah, that was, those are tough times. Yeah, definitely gives you perspective. I'm it sure it like, has influenced your leadership style and the way you address challenges going forward. Also, just what a blessing to have educators out there that are in that environment every day helping oh, kiddos. Right. They're the best. One of the things that came out of that, it's really started formulating my thinking about uh, community engagement because I saw what a community could do. I mean, they were doing some really good things there and there's poverty everywhere. You know, you don't have that many schools that have, uh, although there's more of them today than there were then, I think, that were in that 90% uh, plus range of poverty. And it's just a different animal to try to lead schools like that on a lot of different levels. And, you know, that whole school safety piece, climate and culture piece, um, you know, that community engagement piece, the, the teaching and learning piece, all those things really challenge you. And so, it, you know, certainly a great opportunity for me to uh, learn on the job, if you will, what that's like. And we did some great things. Like I said, every day I got up, I was there to do everything I could to support those kids and families. But the resources it takes to support those types of school communities is pretty substantial to be able to do that. And uh, the best way to do that, though, is to engage with what I learned was to have that whole community engaged and, you know, the families engaged in trying to support those kids. And that was probably my biggest takeaway from that experience is how, um, you know, a school that for all practical purposes shouldn't have been as successful as it was. And the secret sauce, in my view, was just how um, some of the parent leaders in that school took ownership of that school and really drove the conversation and got people to the table. Highly influential. And all I had to do really was uh, back them up and support them in every way that I could so that they could um, influence uh, families to, to stay involved and engaged in the education of the kids in that school community. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's, that was really cool. Uh, maybe talk a little bit more too about, you know, so you went from educator to principal, eventually to superintendent, and obviously each one of those comes with new rewards, but also new challenges. So what was it like entering, you know, the title of like superintendent? Yeah, you know, it's just, I think it's just like every new job you go in and you just have to kind of learn it. The biggest difference between being a superintendent and a principal, I would say two things. One, 
the politics of the job is very different. You spend a lot of time on, on the political side. I don't mean, you know, elected. Well, I, it is elected because you're dealing with school boards, but just the community politics. So every decision that you make at that level, whether you're bidding it's a bank bid or insurance bid or, a, you know, buying a truck or a bus, I mean, everything's political insurance, everything's political. And so every decision you make, there's people that are perceived to be winners and losers, if you will, you know, if, especially when you're talking about bidding things, that's always a challenge. But the other thing with that is that was really different than being a principal was that I liked was that as an issue surfaced at the building level, because when you're building principal, you're on the front line. I mean, when something hits, it hits you right right there, boom. You don't have time to to really regroup. You're having to deal with the, the situation as it is right there. And so um, usually I would hear about that, and then I could collect all the information that I could. If I needed to call an attorney, I could do that, and I could kind of get my ducks in a row so that I knew you know where we stood as a district. And so there was a buffer, if you will, between what was happening on the ground and, and what was happening in the central office, and it gave us an opportunity to be supportive but yet make sure the decision that was made at the building level was the right decision, you know, because we're once removed from the situation, you know, that was kind of nice. But yeah, it's certainly, you know, certainly a different feel, but, you know, you just walk into those jobs and if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to build relationships and uh, work with folks, you know, you'll figure it out. And I love that part of my job. But, you know, when I think about my career, I really loved being an elementary principal. That was awesome. <laughs> that was, that was so much fun. I mean, I just love those kids and, and uh, my teachers and, we really did a lot of good stuff in spite of the frontline challenges. I mean, that, but you're also on the day-to-day, every day, seeing good things that were happening every day. So, so it, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, sometimes, you know, the further up you go in the organization, you really only get involved when you need to for the, yeah, yeah. And that, it can definitely color your vision. Yeah, and I've had a, the pleasure or displeasure, <laughs> depending on the situation of sitting in many, many school board meetings. And uh, I can only imagine being the superintendent, especially, I mean, so you mentioned you got out before COVID hit and all of that, but it just, sometimes there's just a, it's a no win situation, even if yeah. you try your best. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that uh, you go back to 2011 when the tornado hit Joplin, Missouri um, on May 22nd, 2011, you know, you, that was uh, something that wasn't expected. And uh, one of those situations that fell on my lap on the front line, just boom, it's right there. And so going through that um, disaster response and recovery effort and the four years that followed that before I retired in 2015, those were, you know, you talk about the best of times and worst of times. And again, there wasn't a day that I didn't get up that I wasn't excited to go to work and try to do what I could to help folks. Even on my most difficult days, I got up every day with a smile on my face and I was ready to go after it. But it was tough. It was hard on me. It was hard on my family. It was hard on my leadership team around me. I mean, that was a that was a heavy lift for all of us, our teachers, our support staff, our bus drivers, you name it, everybody uh, just kind of pitched in. And, you know, we did some really great things for kids and families and, and took pretty good care of one another for those first few years after the disaster. So really proud of what we were able to accomplish there. From a logistics standpoint, CJ, how did you guys keep school in operation after that disaster? Yeah, it was, that was tough. We were, we were blessed. We had um, a couple of buildings um, that were available. Just put in perspective for the listeners, on my 19 buildings, I had 10 of them hit, six of them destroyed, including my high school, which had 2,200 students, and the current technical education center, which was home to I don't know how many students, but it supported a bunch of districts in the area. Uh, so it was large, and my largest elementary school was hit, brand new middle school. I think we were just finishing up second or third year, and it was hit and destroyed. And so we had just a lot of kids displaced in terms of educational space. So we were able to open up one of our middle schools um, that we kind of, we hadn't boarded up, but we weren't using it like we had been. And uh, so we were able to reopen it. We were able to put our ninth and 10th graders there. And we got a 100,000 square foot box store at North Park Mall that we were able to build out for our 11th and 12th graders. And actually that project, I was really proud of it. We started swinging hammers in that facility and 67 days later, we opened it up 
and got kids in there and um you know and it was a fantastic facility in fact it won the the international award for school design uh that year and it was it was just a fantastic space that that really gave us an opportunity to kind of test drive some concepts for a new high school which was cool and then uh you know we just did the best we could we had you know we found an industrial spec building it was out in the industrial park east of town and so east we lost east middle school and so we kind of renamed it far east because it was uh it was a uh, east, <laughs> yeah, far east, and so uh, it was an industrial spec building. Had nothing but a, you know, no windows. Had a, you know, it looked like a, just a big metal shed basically. No windows, no air conditioning. Had you know, gravel on the floor when we walked in and checked it out. In that same time period, we uh, built that out to a really nice facility for us for three years. That worked out well for us. So you know, we just did what we had to do. We had some modular units too. We opened up another elementary school that had been boarded up for a few years and did our best to you know, it wasn't an ideal situation, I'll tell you that, but our teachers and, and our principals and um, the community really rallied and made those, uh, I think, made those years pretty special for our kids until we get our new schools built. That's amazing. Yeah, I guess like jumping a little further into this whole topic, I had the chance to speak with a lot of facility managers across the country, a lot of K-12 facility managers, but we don't really hear the perspective from the superintendent of how they view facilities or how they view their team. Mm -hmm. you know, their facilities leaders. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that too. Like, yeah. What was the relationship like with your facilities director? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, in terms of uh, my philosophy on facilities, I mean, that's a huge part of culture and climate. If your schools are dingy or if your lights aren't, you know, if the halls aren't well lit and classrooms aren't well lit, you know, if there's cobwebs in the corners that nobody seems to care about, uh, if you're not taking care of maybe some vandalism, if you don't take care of those type of issues, broken windows, all those things, it says something about the district, says something about the community and says something about, in my opinion, says something about the leadership in that community. And so, uh, you know, oddly enough, when I go into a district when I was superintendent, that was the first thing I started looking at was facility cleanliness. And are they clean? Are they well-maintained? Are they good learning environments? And if they're not, then we've got a problem. That's basic instructional uh, leadership 101, that quality of facility matters. So if HVAC systems aren't working or you don't have HVAC or, you know, I mean, those are all things that matter. And it, it impacts morale of staff. It impacts the morale of the students. And, and uh, really, when you're a steward of taxpayer dollars, those facilities are the taxpayer's investment. As your school goes, so goes your community. And so we've got to take care of our facilities. So yeah, that was a, just from a cultural standpoint. When I was a building principal, I felt the same way about my school. That was so important. And I used to walk the building once a week with my lead custodian and we'd walk it once a week. And I had a checklist of things that, that I looked for, you know, that, that were important to me, that the cleanliness of the halls. I was always a stickler on corners. You know, my mom and my grandma, they were, uh, my grandma was German and, uh, you know, we, we cleaned. I mean, talk about spring cleaning. Oh my gosh. That was every weekend we did spring cleaning at home when I was a kid. There was no cartoons until the house was clean. So, uh, so, you know, cleanliness was always something that was important to us. I carried a lot of that to that. So I was always looking at those corners and they knew, I mean, they, they knew that the corners had to be clean. And so they paid a lot of attention to that. And, uh, it's an attitude, I guess, if you will, about how we take care of that, you know, especially your custodial staff, helping them understand the important role. Sometimes I think they're left out of that conversation about how important their role is in terms of instruction, teaching and learning and, and uh, just creating that initial climate and culture that when people walk into your school, they're like, wow, this is a nice space. And it doesn't matter how old the building is. There's no excuse for a building to not be clean, not being taken care of. There's no excuse for that. So that's kind of the approach that we took. And that was my attitude towards that. My relationship with our facilities managers uh, in both schools, every district I ever worked in, whether it was a, as a building principal, I had a relationship with a district facilities manager or with, when I was uh, a superintendent where I was, you know, responsible for all that, uh, had a great relationship with them. And I worked alongside them as closely 
as I did my curriculum instruction specialists. I mean, it was just, they were part of the team. That's great. I guess uh, kind of moving on from there. So you mentioned your last superintendent job wrapped up, was it 2015, 2016? 2015, yeah. 2015. So what are you up to now? Yeah, so I, a lot. You know, I do a lot of work in the disaster recovery space. Um, starting in 2017, really, I started doing some work with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as contract support. And so they call me and, you know, anytime there's a presidentially declared disaster and FEMA starts to get engaged, they work with a lot of different agencies and departments in the federal government. They're the lead. And so they work with U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which is responsible for everything, including even education um, and schools. The hierarchy that they have, you know, they look at children and youth issues as a part of their of their uh, wheelhouse in a disaster and the U.S. Department of Education during a disaster reports to to HHS. So they started calling me to, to, to deploy me out to various disasters. So after Hurricane Harvey, I was um, down working on the Gulf Coast for about eight months supporting schools and the recovery effort. And then um, they liked what I did there enough. They thought maybe I could go to Puerto Rico and help out there. So I went to Puerto Rico for nine months after Maria then a couple months in Florida after Hurricane Michael. And then I don't know if you remember the Paradise Wildfire out in Butte County, California. I would just devastated that community in just, just minutes. And so they sent me out there to work on that project. Did a lot of work with COVID during COVID. A lot of similarities in disaster recovery, natural disaster versus COVID, and just the recovery process and some of the challenges. You know, the communication challenges, the staff morale, and the whole recovery leadership thing is uh, the patterns are very similar. And then um, most recently, I've been doing um, uh, work on uh, tornado recovery in uh, both uh, in Wynn, Arkansas. They lost their high school on March 31st this year. And then in um, uh, South Delta, Mississippi, I've just started engaging with them and working with them a little bit. And I'll probably be going out to Maui in the next few months to spend some time there supporting the recovery as well. So so my life, you know, that's not why I got into the education business, but um, I've kind of fallen in love with this work simply because it's an opportunity to help kids and communities recover. Because again, as I said earlier, as your school goes, so does community. So if we get our schools rebuilt, and I see this after every disaster, you know, schools are central to the community's recovery and healing. And invariably people say, you know, if it, wasn't, if it weren't for the schools, we wouldn't be where we are. It's so important to get those schools up and operational again and, and being to help support communities get their schools back up on their feet is a mineral blessing. That's really great. And what an inspiring line of work to CJ. I mean, kind of taking that knowledge that you have, unfortunately, hard gain mm -hmm. knowledge and, and sharing that with those that need it the most. One of the questions I would have for you too, I mean, it's one thing to get the facilities back in order, but how do you deal with the kind of the cultural impact on the community, on staff, on students. Did, did yeah. you address that as well? or That's tough. And, and you know, and I share, I made some mistakes. I made some real serious mistakes when I was a uh, superintendent uh, in Joplin. And I'm very open. I shared what those mistakes were when, when I talked to school leaders. And the number one thing I think that school leaders need to know when they're going through a crisis, and I, they probably can reflect on this because we've all had this common experience with COVID now, you go through these various phases and, uh, you know, there's the impact phase where, you know, the disaster crisis hits. And then there's a heroic phase where we put on our supermen, superwoman capes and, and we're like out there in front leading the charge. And, and you can see that everywhere, you know, and after disaster, you know, Joplin strong, Puerto Rico strong, uh, Texas strong. I mean, every disaster I've ever been in, you know, I see that kind of messaging where people are like, we got this, we're gonna pull together, we're gonna pull this off. And so people on the front end, they tend to burn. It's like running the sprint and then you're on adrenaline. That only lasts for so long. And so then you go through this real short period that when you're in a leadership position, you, there's nothing you can do really wrong. You know, everybody's like, you know, keep up the good work, proud of you. You know, thanks for doing what you're doing. You, and, and unfortunately, I mean, that, that window for that honeymoon phase is very, very short. And then people get tired 
and cranky, and, and that includes leaders. We're exhausted. We come to the realization that this uh, recovery effort uh, is not something that's going to be over in a few months. And in fact, it might be a year or two and maybe even more, but you can't even see the finish line. And so it it's really becomes demoralizing at that point. And I think when I talk to leaders in that particular phase is referred to as a disillusionment phase where people are like, gosh, you know, we thought this was going to be over with quick. Well, whose fault is that? Well, it must be the leader's fault because we're not making as much progress as we should. And the mistake I think I made is that, you know, during that phase in particular, I should have taken off my Superman cape at that point. And sometimes we forget because you just get in that mode of, um, you know, going 100 miles an hour and it becomes just a part of your daily life, daily routine. And so through that disillusionment phase, I continued to go 100 miles an hour, as did my team. And, uh, you know, burnout, uh, exhaustion, uh, frustration. I mean, that those all kind of, you know, that kind of creates cracks in the foundation of everything you'd laid culturally prior to that. The real challenge, I think, for leaders is to, one, understand when they hit that disillusionment phase, and then, two, uh, remember to take off that Superman cake, take a step back, and uh, spend more time, instead of being out in front and talking and leading the charge, take a step back, uh, sit down with the people that you're leading and spend more time listening and, and less time talking. And uh, that's where I made my mistake. I continue to try to lead the charge, encourage people, you know, that significant hill on the battlefield and of, of recovery. And uh, the end result was is that when I got to the top of that hill, which, you know, we did in 2014, we got all our schools rebuilt. You know, you look behind you, there wasn't a whole lot left to anybody, including myself. And we just worked ourselves into the ground. And so I think we could have got there. Uh, we still could have opened our schools probably on time and got, got everything rebuilt. But uh, I think there are a lot of things I could have done differently to encourage the people's hearts and minds and, and support them in their, in their healing journey as, as we went through that uh, disillusionment phase, which was challenging. We got there. We got there. We did the right thing. You know, I, if I go back and do it all over again, then certainly there'd be some things do, that I do differently. But uh, for the most part, I'm proud. And I think everybody in our community is proud of what we were able to accomplish as a school district. That's huge. I think that's something that's also, just not intuitive for folks to back off a little bit and no, reflect for their team. It's and not natural. Yeah, and if you're in the leadership position, typically that means that you have a strong drive, strong work ethic. And when something is outside of your control, the answer is, let's just work harder. Yeah, <laughs> let's just work exactly harder. Right. Absolutely right. That's what I did. I mean, I was working. I mean, literally, and this went on for, I mean, like I said, there wasn't much left to me. I was, and this was for my team, a lot of my staff, but, you know, I was working 16, 20 hours a day. And even when I slept, I was thinking about work and, and uh, you know, and that went on for several years. I mean, it was brutal. It was brutal. I think a lot of our leaders out there who might be listening probably could relate to um, what I just shared uh, to their own experience um, related to this COVID recovery. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe keep on moving here. One of the things I wanted to get into, so... Correct me if I'm wrong. You're you're the founder of this organization, I, I believe. But Bright Futures USA. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So Bright Futures USA was actually born in Joplin. Uh, we we started that work prior to the disaster, and it was um, really based on uh, a lot of the experiences, personal experiences that I shared earlier, and working with children, families, and and community to uh, support our kids that struggle the most. And so Bright Futures was created as a part of an effort locally to improve our graduation rates. Um, when I got in Joplin in 2008, the on-time graduation rate was 62%, which is was worse than the state of Missouri, worse than inner city Kansas City or in inner city St. Louis. I mean, it was very bottom of the barrel. And so the school board wanted us to do something about it. And so, um, you know, we went through a strategic planning process, identified some of the things we wanted to do. And uh, one of um, the things that kind of came out of that was a need to engage our faith community, our human service agencies, and our business community in partnership with our school 
schools and our parents to really engage in a meaningful way. And really, that's kind of what planted the seed for what ultimately became Bright Futures. And so Bright Futures, there's um, not to spend a lot of time on it, but there are three pillars of the work. Uh, there's uh, meeting kids' basic needs within 24 hours. And we have a system of support that we've uh, built around that that works very, very well. Uh, we've got um, uh, the second pillar, which is about building local leadership and resource capacity. And the third pillar is uh, service learning and kids the opportunity to give back to the communities that are giving to them. And, um, you know, Bright Futures currently, we work with about 70 plus communities in eight states. Um, I mean, I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas right now, which is one of our communities. Uh, we work with about uh, 26 communities in Arkansas, 30 or so in, in Missouri. And then we, you know, a number of other states, including Fairbanks, Alaska, is uh, one of our communities. Uh, I love my folks in Fairbanks. They're doing some great work out there. But really just bringing the community together to see how we can problem solve these issues and challenges that are facing our children and youth, and then uh, working with the community to create new opportunities for kids that didn't exist, whether it's apprenticeship opportunities or mentorship opportunities, career pathway exploration, uh, you, you name it. You know, it's really how can we take the work that we do to support our kids' basic needs and leverage that to build relationships, to bring on more partners, to create other new, more meaningful opportunities so we can change life outcomes for these kids, you know, improve life and academic outcomes. If we can do that, we're doing a pretty good job as a school community, taking care of our kids and, and changing the culture of our community. So proud of that work. And if anybody wants to learn more about that, they can just go out to uh, a shameless plug, uh, www.brightfuturesusa.org. Awesome. Thanks, CJ. Yeah. yeah. If anybody wants to help, is there a way they can help? Obviously, they can look at the information, but if yeah, I remember. Yeah, well, there's really nothing to, uh, for most of the states we work in, uh, it's a one-time $3,000 affiliation fee to get involved with our work. We turnkey, provide all the training, resources, and support to get out of the ground, and uh, and then you become a part of our Bright Futures family, and, and the strength of our organization is our network of communities, and, and we learn from one another. So that's uh, uh, the beauty of our work is that, you know, we want to keep all the resources local and we want to help communities find ways to problem solve those issues and, and uh, work with our community partners to do that. And we work with very, very small rural districts to some pretty large urban districts. And uh, the framework seems to work everywhere we go. So, yeah, just go out to the website and learn more there. And, uh, and if anybody's interested in, in uh, uh, working with us, we'd love to partner and help you guys uh, support your kids. That's great. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, but I uh, typically end each episode just with some advice and you've already given some really great advice, but if you think about other experiences you've had and you think about K-12 leaders, it could be a superintendent, it could be a facilities leader. What parting advice would you give for those looking to kind of enter that role? If there's folks that are interested in becoming a, whether it's a building level leader or a, or a superintendent, my best advice is just do it <laughs> is the Nike uh, <laughs> theme there, I guess. Um, I think the most important thing is from a leadership standpoint, one of the lessons, many lessons I've learned is number one, you, you know, always maintain your sense of humor. You know, you got to find humor, even in your darkest days, try to find something to smile about. The other thing too, is make sure that as a team, you know, as you're leading, that you take time to celebrate uh, the successes as you work through various challenges, also take time to uh, celebrate successes. And then and then probably the most valuable leadership lesson I ever learned actually came by way of my grandma just before I started my first assistant principal job. She sent me a letter. My grandma Huff sent me a letter and congratulating me on handwritten. You know, it was just sweet. And she sent me this handwritten letter saying, you know, just tell me how proud she was. That I was um, going to be a principal. And she um, she offered this one piece of advice. She goes, um, from a leadership standpoint, just remember this. So the wise man takes in the lay of the land before he puts his hand to the plow. And I've carried that with me everywhere I've gone is that, you know, you just don't jump in with both feet and start working. You know, you need to really understand the community, the culture of the community, what the challenges are that exist, and, and then navigate your path forward from there. And that's 
the message that she shared with me. And I always share that message with school leaders, especially new ones, um, so that they can have that. So from the wisdom of uh, from my grandma, I think I, I probably learned more about leadership um, in that one sentence than any any class I ever took in college or, or even for my doctorate program. <laughs> yeah, that's great, man. I take that into account sometimes myself. Yeah, so, we all do. You're right about the humor. Uh, one of the things that kind of we started doing here at FMX once COVID hit and it was kind of a stressful time, I incorporated a, a dad joke at every all company meeting. So <laughs> uh, one small thing, it's a good way to keep myself humble too. So that's funny. Well, we, we, I actually, uh, I, there's a group in Tennessee that I work with and that uh, we do a, a call every, every week. And uh, the leader of that group, he ends the meeting, every meeting with a dad joke. And it's just, it's seriously, it, it's funny. It's a, it's a great way to do it. Yeah. You have a good laugh. Yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and drop it on you then because we're about ready to have our all company meeting in about 20 minutes. So all if right. you don't laugh, right. then I'll have to change it really quick. Okay. No, I'm, I'm sure so, it'll be a good one. Yeah. So what did the one nut say to the other nut that he was chasing? I'm going to cash you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I'll, yeah, I'll belly laugh. Six, six out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, the, is there ever really a dad joke that's a 10 out of 10? <laughs> You know, no, I think they that's get worse the general rule time. of a dad joke. In fact, it probably needs to be a below five to, to yeah. be a true dad joke. <laughs> well, CJ, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate what you guys do. Thank you. Mm-hmm.